0: Caution, the contents of this podcast may be historical, but they're still served piping hot. We're brewing up the classics here on The Coffee House Classical Music Podcast. And welcome to the Coffeehouse Classical Music Podcast. My name is Asa.
1: And I'm Allison.
0: So frankly, we don't know why it took us so long to get to this composer, because it is none other than everyone's favorite wind band master, Gustav Holst.
1: <laughs> yes, if you've participated in any sort of music program at your high school or college, it is very likely that you've encountered the suite that we're looking at today, But just because it's popular doesn't mean it's not good.
0: Really, it should be the opposite. But I guess things have ruined the concept of pop music for us, I guess.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So before we get into the music, let's learn a little bit about Gustav Holst.
0: Well, he was born in 1874. His full name was Gustavus Theodor von Holst the von coming from his Swedish father. And from a young age, young Holst was encouraged to take up music by his father, who was a piano teacher and performer himself. Apparently his father spent so much time at the piano, that after Holst's mother died when he was eight, an aunt had to be brought in to raise the children.
1: Poor little Holst was also a sickly child, and really he was quite sickly his entire life but he had very poor vision and it took years before he actually got proper prescription glasses.
0: He also suffered from terrible neuritis in his hand that apparently he once described as being like jelly with an electrical current sent to it. That sounds awful. And as a final blow against his frail constitution was that he was asthmatic, but there really were unfortunately no good treatments for this back then.
1: As a young child, Holst tried to be a good little pianist and violinist, but due to his hand problems, he just couldn't put in the practice hours required to get good. And so in an unusual shift, he actually took up the trombone instead, and this remained his primary orchestral instrument throughout his young adult life. And his father actually thought that the trombone would be good for his asthma as well. And though we don't really know if it helped, it appeared that it didn't hurt.
0: Luckily, though, for a music lover, performing is not the only available vocation. One can also do things like compose, and that is where Gustav Holst really found his strength. He studied composition at the Royal College of Music under Charles Villiers Stanford, and although Holst respected his teacher, he was often frustrated by lessons, and Stanford apparently had very different opinions than those of young Holst.
1: Luckily, Stanford was not the only person Holst had to bounce ideas off of. He famously befriended Ralph Von Williams as well. And though these two started off with very different writing styles, they still had mutual appreciation for each other's writings. During his young adult and college years, Holst got into several different hobbies and obsessions. First, he fell prey to the allure of Wagner. Many of his early writing seems to actually draw on this influence. However, as time went on, the English folk song revival came more into force and Holst turned away from the heavy German sounds in favor of the more simplistic turn-of-the-century English style.
0: Holst also became involved with the Hammersmith Socialist Society and was the conductor of the group's choir. It was through this position that he met his wife, Isabel, who was a soprano in the group. Gradually, Holst also learned about Eastern religions, particularly Hinduism. This made actually quite a large mark on his compositional life. One of his more well-known pieces, Choral Hymns from the Rig Veda, are English translations of the aforementioned holy book, the Rig Veda. Holst actually took classes in Sanskrit so he could properly translate the passages of the book himself. And he also wrote several operas based on Indian culture, which still experience moderate success.
1: Through these spiritual teachings, Holst also became a vegetarian. Now, we have nothing against vegetarians here, but it was not the right move for the sickly Holst, and he actually became quite anemic during this time. And finally, in addition to his anemia, Holst also got into astrology. <laughs> Obviously the two Obviously, are. Obviously,
0: the two are related.
1: <laughs> <laughs> now, of course you'll recognize Holst's most famous work, The Planets, which was actually meant to depict the astrological identities of the celestial figures. Holst famously called astrology his quote pet hobby. He liked to read the fortunes of his friends, though apparently he didn't see it as prophetical, but rather just that the planetary bodies would affect a person's mood and personality.
0: Holst spent most of his life after school as a professor at St. Paul's Girls' School and Morley College. He was also frequently invited to guest lecture gigs, including a famous visit to the University of Michigan and later for a semester at Harvard. Poor Holst was unable to escape the plague of bad health even in his later years. In one incident, he fell backward off of a conducting podium and experienced a concussion with side effects that lasted the rest of his life. In addition to splitting headaches, he couldn't stand anything touching the back of his head. No hats, no pillows, nothing.
1: After this, he also frequently suffered bouts of anxiety and depression, and was ordered by his doctor to take a mental health break in the countryside. Though Holst was not one to really care one way or another about the reception of his music, truly he just kept writing and writing, but these episodes did make him doubt if his creativity was actually coming to an end. He also developed a terrible GI ulcer that basically incapacitated him. In 1934, Holst underwent a surgery intended to correct this ulcer and give him his life back. And while he survived the surgery, he unfortunately died just a few days later from heart failure, no doubt due to the strain put on the cardiovascular system during such operations.
0: Holst's grave is in the Cathedral in Chichester, notably next to the memorial for the famous Tudor composer Thomas who who is one of Holst's greatest musical inspirations. And now, we shall turn our attention to one of Holst's greatest musical legacies, the first suite in E-flat or military band.
1: Though it is such a cornerstone piece of wind band literature now, there's really no apparent auspicious occasion for which it was written. Holst kept a personal record of all the pieces that he composed, and this one was entered under the year 1909. However, there are no definitive records of it actually being performed until 1920. It is notable that this piece was written for winds, not for orchestra and then transcribed for winds. Holst therefore showed himself to truly understand the intricacies of the wind band as an ensemble and how best to showcase the different timbres available to him.
0: The first suite is written in three movements, which are meant to be played as close to back-to-back as possible. The first movement, the Chaconne, is the slowest of the three, thereby changing up our expectations in a suite of the correct quote-unquote order of the movements, because usually this movement is a middle movement. The Chaconne also provides us with the theme that will be transformed throughout all three movements in some iteration or another. Now let's take this opportunity to ask Allison, what is a chaconne?
1: Well, I'm so glad you asked. Thank it's you. similar to a pascalia.
0: Well, what's a passacaglia?
1: <laughs> so there's a repeating harmonic structure and melody in the bass line. However, the Chaconne actually started its life as a very lively 17th century Spanish dance. Then it made its way towards Italy before being heightened in the French Baroque bourgeoisie music.
0: Well, that's all well and good. But what does it mean for us? (laughs) Another great question. Thank you.
1: (laughs) You're welcome. First, we hear our main theme laid out in the euphonium and the contrabass clarinet. And then it's repeated 14 more times with variations.
0: Now, these variations are often a counter-melody put over the main theme. For example, the second repetition, or the first variation, brings in coronets with a completely different but complementary melody, while the trombones take over our theme.
1: Going on to explore the different timbre that the band has to offer, we then transfer everything to the woodwinds. The tenor sax and the bass clarinet take over the melody. However, it should be noted that the melody only has one pickup note, and the rest of the woodwinds here, the oboe, clarinet, and alto sax, actually have two pickup notes towards this phrase. So this actually does a great job of hiding our main theme behind the new variation material.
0: And on we go, hiding the theme in the background while Holst develops the overall harmonic structure with different ideas. But it's not always hidden. Sometimes Holst brings it back to the fore. Now he has the whole band's texture going. The melody is shouted out in the bass clarinet, bari sax, trombones, and euphonium, while everyone else, including the percussion with snare drum, plays emphatic little rhythmic modifiers. I think we get the idea. There's variations on a theme.
1: A final very interesting variation to touch on before we move to the next movement is here, with the melody played in the alto sax, horn, and clarinet. It's obviously the theme, yet it's difference. It's actually an inversion, meaning the intervals are turned upside down. So for example, instead of moving upward and then downward for our t- first two statement intervals, we instead go down, then up.
0: Okay, and one final bit of this first movement before we go on, the little finale, again with full band texture. The theme and counter melodies really reach a high point and sound quite triumphant. Onto the second movement as most bands do.
1: And that is the intermezzo, which is personally my favorite of the three. This movement starts with every band director's worst nightmare, the E-Flat clarinet.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Their worst nightmare, your greatest dream.
1: What's even more impressive is that it's not just supposed to be one E-flat clarinet, but actually two. There's meant to be repeated eighth notes played on C and E by this little monster instrument.
0: As an aside here, if you are a band director, you've probably felt, especially in like a high school band, trying to play this, and there are two people in your ensemble that own E-flat clarinets, you've probably felt the sinking dread that comes with trying to get both of them to play in tune, and (laughs) on time, and delicately. But when it happens, it's amazing.
1: But what usually ends up happening is that there are cue notes, meaning the basically the E-flat part, written into the flute and or first clarinet, asking them to play the notes instead. So if your band is not fortunate enough to have two E-flat players, or if your band director personally hates the instrument so much, so much. <laughs> the overall effect is still there.
0: So the first real melody we get in the second movement is almost like a sea shanty, however it's loosely based on the harmonic structure of the Chaconne's theme from before. It's first presented to us in the oboe and coronet, with the first clarinet backing them up. A fun combination of instruments in the band, because though one is brass and one is woodwind, they actually sound kind of similar. The clarinet serves to mellow out the coronet's more nasally sounds.
1: Our next little phrase's motif is just quarter notes over staccato eighths. It's Almost a bit jazzy sounding Possibly because we get the entire Saxophone section involved
0: First time on the podcast to say Saxophone section
1: A Love big it. welcome to the saxophones Big
0: welcome to the saxophones here on the coffeehouse <laughs> And out of this mellow Yet building section Holst utilizes the many Many available woodwinds To play a sweeping upward scale To transition back to the main theme When you can start a scale in the bass clarinet and run through the whole third, second, first clarinet section as well, often consisting of at least two players per part, you can really take the scale to new heights.
1: So while our first theme was based on the Chaconne, there's actually a second theme in the intermezzo. It's loosely based on the folk song I Love My Love, which is also featured in Holst's second suite for band. And of course... Holst shows his true orchestration mastery by giving this sweet melody to the solo clarinet. At first, in this B section, there's just sparse texture. It's the solo clarinet and backed up by their little clarinet section friends to create the ultimate smooth texture.
0: It's joined by other instruments to highlight a difference in timbre that Holst is such a master of. We get interjections by the horn and oboe, and a little duet with the flute as well. It's very important that Holst set up that clarinet wall of sound to prepare us for the next iteration of this theme. The coronet takes over the melody, and the clarinet section has sweeping, swirling, lush eighth notes underneath. This accompaniment is so beautiful that the listener's ears needed to be prepped for the sound so it's not lost in the background.
1: one of my favorite passages of music in the entire classical canon. But quickly after that, we move back to our first theme again, but it's a little more development section-like. The trombone fluctuates between a few keys, and the woodwinds try to take the wheel, but finally the coronets lead the charge with the original theme.
0: But I put to you, Allison, what's the point of having two themes if not to play them together? Well, this is classical music, of course. So here we go. The saxophones bring in the folk song for us, while the interjections of the quasi chaconne are sprinkled around through the band. The whole piece winds down rather nicely, with the piccolo actually having the last cute input on the theme, while the bass clarinet and third through first clarinets play upward little staccato fifths.
1: And speaking of high-pitched instruments, you better hope that your band has a piccolo, because there's no cues written for it in other parts— But luckily, band directors seem to like the piccolo and allow it to grace their ears time and time again. Unfair treatment? I think yes.
0: I think so. (laughs) Rise up, oppressed E-flat clarinetists everywhere. (laughs) Show your worth. (laughs) And now we shall conclude with the triumphant third movement, The March. This was, after all, for a military band.
1: starts off rather alarmingly with trills in the upper woodwinds and downward staccato quarter notes in the brass. And remember, play back-to-back with the second movement. This is a really nice contrast, as we just had quietly moving upward notes in the top of the band, and now we have big marching downward notes towards the bottom.
0: Ending in a fun way with every percussionist's favorite bass drum solo. (laughs) Now this march melody is again loosely based on the harmonic structure of the initial chaconne. However, this is more like the inversion of it.
1: This is also the most militaristic sounding part of the suite. So after that trill with the woodwinds, they're actually told to rest until the B theme comes in later. So the only textures that we get in this section are the brass and percussion, all ready to head right into battle.
0: One interesting part of this whole soundscape is right here. Everything drops out except for the coronets, trumpets, and flugelhorns. Yes, all three types of the trumpety guys. So they all really have to be ready to power through.
1: As a side note, every time I hear this part, I can never in my mind's eye sing what that upper note should actually be. Because apparently it's a really difficult note for trumpeters to play, so I feel like almost 99% of the time that I've ever heard it, that note has been so very badly
0: missed. You're throwing some acute shade right there, Allison.
1: <laughs> There's lots of shade in this episode.
0: <laughs> there is a lot of shade in this episode. Not at all colored by our personal experiences. No, no.
1: Okay, but regardless of all that, I still love this piece. It's still one of my Absolutely. top 50, I'd say.
0: I I am with you there, 100%. After this big brass show, the B-theme is almost all woodwinds with some light horn and trombone accompaniment. This B-theme much more closely represents the original Chaconne as the first two statement intervals are the same. Let's listen and compare the march to the Chaconne.
1: Just before this legato B section marches away, the trumpets come in very quietly, with staccato quarters in the background, signaling that we are going to get big and brassy yet again.
0: But this isn't an American march, and it's not as big and brassy as we thought it might be. Now, the flutes take on the march and give it more of a delicate sound. But not to worry, the brass is back, baby, and they're here to develop this theme, meaning to run it through some different keys and to build up the tension, of course. (laughs)
1: come in with what is supposed to be accompaniment but sometimes turns into a wash of -of out-of-tune high notes depending on the ensemble performing it
0: not my ensembles (laughs) and certainly not this one this is the u.s marine band after all yes
1: they are top-notch high quality (laughs) (laughs) and we bring it home with a doubling up on the themes again Both A and B are played together. Since they're both based on the general Chaconne harmony, they fit together really well.
0: One particularly interesting interaction here. The woodwinds are tootling upward as they tend to do, while the brass are finishing just the first stanza of the B-theme. As the woodwinds hit their resolution, it gives a much more grand feel to the finishing up of the brass melody in the next phrase.
1: And who doesn't like a coda? Holst gives us some fun tension and release in his coda before we end up with the brass on a triumphant E-flat major tonic chord that is so well-voiced, and the woodwinds rush up in an E-flat major scale to the end.
0: So there we go with the first suite in E-flat. We really hope that you have enjoyed it as much as we did. It's a real pleasure to take a look at one of the few pieces that we can of what I think would be the classical canon of the concert wind ensemble.
1: Wind bands as a whole are a little bit more of a modern concept, so a lot of the works are very modern, very copyrighted, very difficult for us to analyze,
0: unfortunately, here. As much as we would absolutely love to do, you know, some mislanka or something like that. (laughs) If only. If only.
1: But alas...
0: Dang copyright.
1: Um, I guess if you have an interest in band music, if this has piqued your ears a bit, just go on to Spotify, YouTube, wherever you get your music, or your podcast for that matter from, um, <laughs> and just type in you know any of the military bands, watch some of their performances. Um, the Dallas Winds is another professional wind band out there, and of course, any number of collegiate bands or honor bands, they have performances out there, and just... You know, familiarize yourself with the wind band catalog, I guess.
0: <laughs> yeah, I think there's a lot of it that gets not necessarily a bad rap, but certainly passed over because I feel like it's viewed as an a more amateur musical ensemble, simply because like there's so much more for orchestras. and There aren't a lot of there aren't a lot of professional wind bands and, you know, everyone's in high school band and that's your impression of a band it's either that or a marching band. And there's... A concert band gets short shrift sometimes.
1: Having been in a very high-performing concert band for several years in college, though, the music gets hard. It's, it's quality. Hard. It's not poor quality at all.
0: <laughs> exactly. Um, and it is a lot of fun, and it's completely different from an orchestra. The The experience of playing and listening to it, just this different soundscape, that it generates especially with that there saxophone section it's just it's something else you should listen to it and you should listen to our next episode coming to you not live coming to you in two weeks where we're going to be looking at the second suite in f from the very same gustav holst
1: so look forward to that go back and listen to the rest of our catalog if you haven't share it with a friend share it with someone that you were in band with in high school
0: yes maybe an e-flat clarinetist that you know
1: (laughs) or your band director who hates (laughs) (laughs) e-flat
0: and until then for the coffeehouse classical music podcast i'm asa and
1: i'm allison thank you so much for listening the first suite in E-flat was performed by the United States Marine Band, conducted by Frederick Fennell. You can find The Coffeehouse on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram. Email us at coffeehouseclassical at gmail.com.